This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, it's official. Start of a brand new year. And now that it is 2024, for those of you that have been waiting for nearly a century, here we are. Here we are. After nearly a century, uh, the early Walt Disney film, Steamboat Willie, is now in the public domain. Not much dialogue. Basically just Mickey Mouse whistling as he rides a boat, a steamboat. Uh, So, the version of Mickey that's in Steamboat Willie is not a lot like the Mickey that we know today. He's more, he looks more like a rat, quite frankly. His roots in the blackface minstrel shows at the time are a little bit more apparent. He's not exactly cuddly, and for much of the movie, Mickey Mouse amuses himself by forcing barnyard animals into being unwilling musical instruments. But the good news is, if you have not seen steamboat willie you are now welcome to reproduce that anywhere you want post it sell it you can do a literary version of steamboat willie as long as it doesn't encounter any of the other characteristics that mickey has adopted over the years i when i put my son to bed on new year's eve i told him because i i made the mistake of thinking he was going to sleep through the night that didn't pan out but i told him son because he's a fan of mickey mouse when you wake up For the first time in either of our lifetimes, the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey Mouse will be in the public domain. He seemed uh, completely underwhelmed. He drinks water from a Mickey Mouse cup, and he did manage to say Mickey water. But uh, that's that's that was the totality of his interest. He seemed completely unmoved at what a monumental thing this is. But it really is monumental. We could have the Steamboat Willie Mickey as a character on this show. We could they could put Steamboat Willie Mickey in pornography, for instance. Uh, they could depict him in all sorts of other things, right? Science fiction, horror. So anyway, that's exciting. If you follow this stuff. Let me tell you what's coming up, and then uh, I want to tell you about something that I think is not so exciting. Coming up in about uh, 20 minutes, we're going to talk with Andrew Goldberg. Andrew Goldberg, I've followed his career for a long time. He is a uh, journalist and a filmmaker, and he had an incredible piece in Newsweek about how his family has been the victim of bullying and anti-Semitism, and if you look at how his son's school handled this, this is a textbook way of how not to handle this. So coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Emmy Award-winning producer and director Andrew Goldberg. And then I'm sure a lot of you heard the news of this earthquake in Japan, which may lead to some tsunamis. But uh, we're going to go live to Japan a little later in the program, get an update from Dave Spector about what's happening there, and a look at um, all things related to Japan, because actually there's quite a bit uh, in the news when it comes to all things Japan. Now, it's 2024, and that means Generation Alpha is rising. What's Generation Alpha? 
Generation Alpha is the only generation born fully in the 21st century. Other generations, whether it's millennial, whether it's Gen Z, they have some people born in the 20th century, some people born in the 21st. Generation Alpha is the only generation that's fully in the 21st century. And the oldest of them are about 13 years old. The youngest of them are going to be born this year, this coming year. Now, this is a landmark generation. They're really the first generation in history to live fully online. Their members have grappled with all sorts of things, and they can spend more money easily at their age than any other previous generation, mostly just through a mobile phone. I'll tell you, when I was 12, I had a tough time spending money that wasn't cash. That's not a problem any 12-year-old has these days. But what led me, what that got me thinking, seeing this Generation Alpha come of age, is a callback to something that we talked a little bit about before. But I think bears repeating because the more we learn about this, the more alarming it becomes. This is the, a generation whose whole life they've been spied upon. They now think and will grow up thinking that being spied upon is normal. They don't think anything about it is unusual. They not only live their life as voyeurs uh, and posting content for other voyeurs on things like TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, you name it, et cetera, et cetera, but they think it's totally normal to walk down the street and have cameras look at you. They think it's totally normal to have a camera take a photo of you while you're speeding. They think it's totally normal to have your mobile phone, something that is supposed to be performing you a service, listen to your conversation and then send you ads based on what's in that conversation. Well, if you thought that your cell phone or Alexa or Google device or your ring camera were the worst thing, were the worst Things spying on you, think again, because it turns out your car is one of the worst offenders when it comes to protecting your privacy. Mozilla, the company that built the Firefox internet browser and is now a leading watchdog for consumer privacy data, they found cars are the worst product category they have ever reviewed for privacy. Understand, your car gives you less privacy than your mobile phone or your Ring camera, or your Alexa device, or anything else, according to Mozilla. So this should alarm everybody. And how come nobody's talking about this? This is bad. Cars have more and more cameras, and they have interior cameras now. They're always watching. That's not just a word from me. That's Bernard Chow speaking with uh, Channel 7 in Denver. He's a privacy law professor at the University of Denver. And if you think about it, your car is basically these days a rolling computer on wheels. And for many of us, we're not only we not only use the car to get around, we live in it. It's basically for a lot of people an extension of your office. So, a lot a lot of times it's convenient to be able to say, "Hey Siri, read my text messages" and to have your phone contacts on there, and to have whatever radio, uh, or it's not even radio, whatever podcast or streaming platforms you want on your car, all built in, and GPS, but there's a price that you're paying for this. And the price that you're paying is that people you don't know have access to all of your data. Not only where you're going, 
not only who you're talking to, not only what you're listening to, but everything. All 25 car companies, Mozilla reviewed, failed miserably at protecting your data and privacy. The worst offenders were Cadillac, Hyundai, and Nissan, um, or, or among the worst offenders. The absolute worst is Tesla, which when you think about it, it makes sense because that Tesla is totally computerized. Nissan, for example, says they can collect your information. This is part of the agreement that you signed. Nissan says they can collect your information about sexual activity. Kia says they can collect information about your sex life. And there were four companies that said in the agreement that you sign when you buy or lease a car that nobody reads, that they can collect genetic information. The mountain of paperwork that you sign when you buy or lease a car essentially gives manufacturers the rights to all of your data. Anything you do in that car. And think of how frightening that is. We know how reliant these auto manufacturers are on the government for any number of things. Do you think if the state police or the municipal police or the FBI come knocking on uh, Cadillac's door asking for your information, that Cadillac is going to have any hesitance about handing that over without a warrant? Of course not. In the huge stack of paper that you signed to get your car, no one gets into the details. Mozilla found 84% of car manufacturers share your data. Think about that. 76% of them say they sell it. So you're listening to X, Y, or Z. You're traveling to A, B, or C. You're talking to so-and-so, so-and-so, or so-and-so. They have your data, and 76% of them are selling it to someone else. So not only are you making money for the car company by buying or leasing a car, but they're making money off you by selling your personal preferences to someone else. 56% of vehicle manufacturers say they will share personal information about you with government or law enforcement upon request without a court order. Basically, what we've done gradually in society is we have made the Fourth Amendment almost non-existent. We've made it kind of a, a civil right in name only. Because if the government can get access to all the information it wants about you, where you're going, who you're talking to, what you're listening to, without a warrant, without a court order, then what does the Fourth Amendment even mean? So I mention this because we have a multitude of ages listening to this show, thankfully. Grateful for that. And some of you may still remember a time in your life where you weren't spied on 24 hours a day. And my concern, like, I don't know that there's anything I could say or do to stop this, but my concern is now all of Generation Alpha and everyone who grows up after this is going to grow up thinking this is normal. And I find that very disconcerting. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Um, Four open lines if you want to comment. In many cases, 
your car's camera system isn't just there for your safety, but to track your habits. Think about that. And you hook up your phone, you share your contacts with your car, which is convenient, but those contacts might also end up at the car company. So the car companies could also share information about how you drive, since smart cars are equipped with not only GPS, but, you know, accelerometers and more. So if you speed a lot, you change lanes quickly, you drive on the wrong side of the road, this is going to become an issue that you know the insurance companies are going to get involved with. You don't think the insurance companies are going to start paying these auto manufacturers if they're not already and saying, we want the information on how our drivers are driving so we know how much to charge them in insurance premiums? So unlike your phone, which gives you the option to turn off location services and other functions, for starters, your phone just gives you the option to turn off. Vehicle manufacturers have made that Nearly impossible. Your navigation is going to work in a certain way. Your audio is going to work in another way in which it's recording what you're saying. And it's able to collect all that data. And it just piles on and on and on. Data is a goldmine. I think Elon Musk said that recently. That's the most valuable thing you have. And it's the most valuable thing these big tech companies have is data. And being able to sell that to other advertisers can be a part of what's going on now. And that's scary. And the reality is, if consumers knew what the vehicle manufacturers were doing with their data, there'd be a lot more concern. I don't think people know, which is why I'm mentioning it. 800-848-9222. You know all these protests that are shutting down the Brooklyn Bridge and JFK Airport and the Thanksgiving Day Parade and the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree? How about a protest for privacy? How about a protest with private companies spying on you all the time and selling your data? How about that? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Joe in Lindbrook. Hi, Joe. Happy New Year. Hey, Frank. How are you? Um, so this whole thing when you talk about the cameras and cars, so you're telling me my brand new monitor is spying on me. Yes. Have, you know, all kinds of cameras. And plus, I installed myself front and rear cameras. So you're telling me Mazda is spying on me. Yes. Okay. And how is that possible? How do you know this? Well, you read this Mozilla report. They reviewed one... Um, the the agreement that you sign when you buy or lease a car, which gives them the rights to all this data. And then they reviewed the technology that all of these smart cars use. And then they ask the car manufacturers themselves what they're actually doing with the data. They're not keeping it a secret. Okay, but here's my question to you, Frank, is what am I doing in my Mazda that they have to spy on me for? Well, I mean, all I do is I, go forward and backwards. Right, but but I, I, I don't know I what have, you're doing. Hold on. Right, but you, well, hold on a second. Yeah, I have backup cameras, and Mazda, you know, all kinds of cameras. So, what are they spying on me for? I I'm not buying this whole thing that the cars that my Mazda is spying on me. Joe, what one of the things they'll see the locations you're going to, 
and they will sell your data to other advertisers that are interested in geo-targeting you based on the locations that you're traveling to. They'll see the uh, the uh, services that you're listening to through your smartphone or if you have a smartphone or the people that you're talking to and sell you products based on, on that. And, you know, Joe, the, the, the dangerous thing is is they're spying on you in and using that information in ways that I can't even conceive. So I just know about it. Now, if you don't mind, that's fine, but you should at least know what's going on. 800-848-9222. Timothy is in Brooklyn. Hi, Timothy. Hey, good morning, Mr. Frank, and Happy New Year, sir. You too. Um, and, and, and short, I just wanted to say, um, I think the word that you are kind of pretty much looking for in regard to the Fourth Amendment is obsolete. Now, I'm a boomer. So I can kind of relate to what you're saying. No, it's not normal. But to these uh, new ones coming up, that's that's the world that they're being born and bred into. Because look, it, it even extends to the televisions. Remember, we're from the, the days of remotes and non-remotes, and now everything is smart. So who knows what what is or what isn't being sold, you know, privately. Well, the smart televisions, uh, that's uh, that's another good example, Timothy. But kind of like the cell phones, with the smart televisions, you can unplug them, right? I mean, if you don't want that camera that's on your television set looking at you while you're, say, being intimate with uh, your partner or committing a crime, you can unplug it. There's really no way that as long as your car is operable that you can opt out of all these services. Uh, Thank you, Timothy. 800-848-9222. Robert's in Suffolk. What's on your mind, Robert? Hi. Happy New Year to you and the family. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, You know, I I actually read the terms service agreement and uh, other things um, that come with like using websites, but uh, this is kind of a shock about the car when you buy one from a dealer. Yeah, I mean, I I think this is crazy. I'm going to post this one article um, on this, which details what Mozilla Mozilla found, because uh, this is really, I think, quite uh, alarming. They have the worst data privacy and unmatched power to spy on you. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a uh, a dangerous proposition. So if people want to read it, I, I just posted the article on my Facebook page. They can take a look. Uh, uh, Frank. Yeah. I don't I don't use Facebook, so um All right. do you have do I have your email? Is it do, on Mozilla's website? It should be. I mean if you just type in car spying Mozilla, you'll see a bunch of articles uh going back I guess the first one is going back all the way to September, where they talk about how this research finds these modern cars are a privacy nightmare. This this sexual activity <laughs> I mean this is Going way over the top. No, no kidding, Robert. No kidding. And look, how, how, how are they going to get your uh, genetic data? You mean when you, you sign that thing of it when you buy the car, the agreement that they'll get access to your twenty three and Me and all those other services? You know, I, I don't you know. I, I don't know. Um, but if you look at what Mozilla says about these popular global brands, including, and thanks for the call, Robert, BMW, Ford, Toyota, Tesla, Kia, Subaru, they were found to keep deeply personal data on their users, such as immigration status, race, facial expressions, weight, 
health, and yes, genetic information, and obviously where you drive. So Mozilla's researchers found that data is being gathered by a combination of sensors, microphones, and cameras, as well as the car's app. A lot of these cars have an app that goes with the car, which provides a gateway to information on your phone and third-party apps like SiriusXM and Google Maps. So to add some stark context, Mozilla notes that just 63% of mental health apps, which is another category that has very low marks when it comes to privacy, got dinged in their privacy study compared to 100% of car brands. And worse, we don't, uh, you know, uh, to um, the fellow Joe, I think it was, we don't know what car companies are doing with this information. Of the brands that were surveyed, again, 84% said they can share your personal data with service providers, data brokers, and other businesses. 76% said they can sell your personal data. 56% also said they can share information with government or law enforcement with just an informal request. And my fear is twofold. One, people don't know about this. Two, this Generation Alpha is going to grow up thinking this is normal. This Mozilla Research Project, they found Nissan to be one of the worst offenders because the company admitted to collecting a wide range of information in its privacy policy, including sexual activity, health diagnosis data, and genetic data. It doesn't say exactly how it collects this information, but they say they are admitting to collecting it. Why would they admit to collecting it if they weren't? Or at least, why would they admit to collecting it if they don't have plans to? I think this is incredibly frightening. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk uh, anti-Semitism and bullying in a moment. First, let me say hello to Pamela. Happy New Year, Pamela. Happy New Year. Um, You know, this has been a long time coming. Like uh, military psyops, they've used subliminal messages in the 70s. And uh, we remember hearing about that. And I can't believe that people don't know this. When you get into your new car, uh, which is just about everything now, you know, new is uh, not too a few years ago, you are sitting in a Wi-Fi maze of them absorbing everything about you. And every move you make in that car is recorded. It's a giant computer. And, you know, just test your phone. Have a conversation with somebody, whoever you're calling, and then throw in something weird. Like uh, I did it one day, ice skates. I just threw that in. And all of a sudden, I got advertisements for ice skates. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. You, we are being read upside and down and it's for commercialism but it's also china is doing this to keep control of its public you know that's such a good point that you raise and uh thanks for the call pamela i didn't even mention hackers right let's say there are um hackers backed by uh, whatever pick whatever country you're most afraid of the iranians the russians the uh, north koreans whatever whatever country you're not crazy about They all have these hacking farms where these people work round the clock to hack your data. I mean, let's say there's a stockpile of your data that Nissan has or Cadillac or any of the BMW. Do you really want, you think hackers are not going to be able to gain access to this? Of course they will be able to. Doug's in New Jersey. Hi, Doug. Doug. 
All right, we lost you. All right, it's just as well, because Andrew Goldberg is standing by. We'll talk about anti-Semitism, bullying, and more straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg, please, for your sympathy, I don't mind, cause you mean that much to me. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, over the last few years, both in the United States and abroad, we have seen a disturbing trend. This trend, unfortunately, has been exacerbated since October 7th, both around the country and around the world, which is there has been an uptick in anti-Semitism. However you measure this, whoever the body doing the measuring is, whatever you consider anti-Semitism to be, whatever the metric, whatever your barometer, things are heading in the wrong direction. Well, uh, I came across a story recently that I read in Newsweek about a family that is dealing with a pretty overt instance of anti-Semitism, but even if it didn't have anything to do with anti-Semitism, this is a textbook example as to how to not handle things in a school or in any sort of environment dealing with young people. And it just so happens to involve uh, the son of Emmy Award winning producer and director Andrew Goldberg, who is the founder and owner of So Much Film in New York City. And uh, he's executive produced and directed 16 primetime documentary specials for PBS and public television. Very pleased to welcome to the program Andrew Goldberg. Andrew Happy New Year. You're our first guest of uh, 2024. I am. I am. Well, I mean, I, I, Happy New Year indeed. Yes, I was just I was just realizing I needed to start writing 2024 when I write things down. Happy New Year to everyone. <laughs> yeah, I make that mistake for the first two months. Uh, Andrew, I, I wish we were talking under uh, better circumstances because I followed your career and your work for a long time and I'm a big fan. And if there's time, I'd love to talk about uh, some of the work that you've done, which is relevant to this discussion, actually. But I, I came across this piece that you wrote in Newsweek involving uh, an incident with your son and uh, a friend of his, or at least a boy that he was acquainted with, give us the uh, give us the Reader's Digest version, if you can, of uh, what your son went through at the, at the school in uh, Connecticut. Sure. So we're in we're in Westport, Connecticut, and we came here. Westport, Connecticut is it's generally a, a, a considered a pretty tolerant, open minded town. You know where people are. I, I wouldn't call it. Uh, you know, I, I would say they're open-minded in their thinking, and and we moved here because of that. There was a, a decent-sized Jewish community, and the schools are considered, you know, to be, you know, some of the better schools. So we got excited about that, and we moved here just 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 a little over two years ago. Um, and what happened was it wasn't just one student; it was a number of students who started to sort of bully my son and taunt my son in a lot of different ways. They were using a lot of different slurs and and language that that we were not at all comfortable with. But it took a much more problematic turn for me when uh, two of the students, one in particular, but then another one sort of joined in, uh, started to really direct uh, some anti-Semitic language at my son. And and out of the blue, the first thing that one of them said completely with no prompting at all was, 
uh, he invited my son to uh, join his camp, Camp Auschwitz, he said. And he said that there was another Jewish student, uh, he used the student's name, who had signed up for this camp and that my son should join because it had great showers. Mm. And, uh, you know, this was, my son did, this was a new friend for my son, and, you know, he didn't really know what to make of it. I think it shocked him a little bit and it scared him, but he, you know, continued the friendship, uh, you know, didn't didn't tell it to me at this point. They then were watching uh, the TV show South Park, you know, they watch a lot of things together and, you know, they're 12 you know, maybe they shouldn't have been watching South Park, but whatever. I mean, I'm not going to police every single thing that they do. But he was over here. The friend was and they were watching South Park. And one of the characters, Cartman, says, we must exterminate the Jews. Well, this friend of uh, of my son or so-called friend started to say to my son with regularity, we must exterminate the Jews. And he said it to him over and over and over and over again. And my son asked him to stop. He wouldn't stop. My son said, we have family members who died in the Holocaust. Do you think it's okay? The friend said, yes. I wouldn't call him a friend at this point. The, the, the bully at this point said, yes, it's okay that I say this to you and continued to say it to my, to my son you know, repeatedly. Um, and then uh, somewhere in the process of all of this, he was at one, another student's house and they started shooting him with a squirt gun and saying, shoot the Jew, shoot the Jew. And it was at this point that I the information all came to to me and I, you know, got involved with the school and, and tried to put a stop to it. So that was sort of the the, mm-hmm. the the background of what happened. There was a lot of bullying and really nasty behavior that went on. In addition, it was a total of three or four kids that mistreated my son this way, but really one that was really most focused with the anti-Semitism and another one that did some sort of anti-Semitism work as well. So I think a lot of parents uh, can, and parents who have had a 12-year-old previously, they can relate to uh, a child being bullied, unfortunately. Unfortunately, this is part of what comes with uh, having a 12-year-old. Tell me then what happened with the school when you tried to get the school involved. Well, we went to the school and we, you know, I, I, I was very upset and I insisted that both the principal of our, of our middle school and the superintendent of schools for Westport, I mean, it's not that big of a city, meet us. And they met us. I was, you know, I, I put some pressure on them to meet us right away. And they met with us and they said, well, the first thing that they're going to do is create a safety plan. Now, that on its face sounds very strategic and smart to me. The trouble was the safety plan was that my son could basically leave. So there was a lunch table where my son would sit with some regularity and he was being asked, the, the, the kids there, this is part of the bullying, were voting him off the table or asking him to leave the table or all sorts of things. I'm summarizing. And he was very upset about that. But the solution for the school was that any situation that was not comfortable for my son, they would move my son. I call it move the Jew. I mean, it was just appalling to me that none of it dealt with treating the anti-Semites or the bullies. It had it all was based around that my son, this Jewish kid, had to move. So I was very upset. And I said, you know, why don't you address the bullies? Why don't you address the anti-Semites? Well, you know, the, the principal said we have we have some uh we have some um, field trips we need to go on. We'll work. We'll get to it next week. And it was just this slow, weird, non-responsive behavior from the school. And this is where we got very, very upset and, and ultimately took him out of the school because mm-hmm. we felt that they were not doing anything to keep our son safe. And we felt that they also weren't doing anything to address the bullies and the, and the anti, anti-Semitism. I mean, it was like a, every point of contact you could have with the school, they seemed to be botching in our view. 
and, and it was deeply upsetting. And, and then uh, was your and we're talking with uh, Andrew Goldberg. I just linked to this uh, article in Newsweek on my Facebook page. If you want to check it out, Facebook.com/slash/MoranoFan. When you uh, talk with the school and tried to get this resolved, and it was not resolved, was there uh, w- was your son treated any differently by other people other than the bully as far as uh, as far as their interactions with him, other children, or I don't know, maybe even other other adults. So it's interesting. You know, this is a thing that happens, and I think it happens more with, I I think it happens with all racism and bigotry, but it particularly seems to happen a lot with Jews. And we can get into why later in the conversation or now if you want. Mm -hmm. But there's a a sort of a trend, which is that when Jews speak up about about anti-Semitism, they're somehow viewed as a problem. I don't quite understand what that is, and I'm not formally accusing the school of doing that. But what I will say is there there was another family in town that wrote us a very unpleasant text. And he, he said to he said to me, uh, I can't believe what you're doing to this other family that you're calling them Nazis. I never called them Nazis at all, uh, but uh, uh, they're not Nazis. There <laughs> was this very strange text. And now nobody wants to be around your son because of how you're treating this other family. So in other words, in the retelling of the story, we were the villains. Our son was bullied. Our son was subjected to anti-Semitism. But as the word spread throughout the town, my son's phone stopped ringing. The kids stopped calling him. Uh, the he basically lost his friends. Uh, that's what you get for speaking up about anti-Semitism. And this to us shows, you know, further failure by the schools to handle the situation. But now with other parents, we are we are the bad ones. And think about how that works. Your son is bullied. You speak up about it. And as a result of speaking up about the, the anti-Semitism and the bullying, you're dropped by the other by the other parents in town turn against you and other students turn against your son. He went to the YMCA to play and a bunch of the students saw him. They all hushed his name and ran away from him as quickly as possible. So he becomes a pariah, a little 12 year old. And it was devastating for him. It was totally devastating for him. And it was hard for us as parents. Oh, sure. I can imagine. If people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Andrew, Gold- Andrew Goldberg, Emmy Award winning producer and uh, the father of a 12 year old who was the victim of anti Semitic bullying, only to have the whole family be uh, sort of re victimized by the school. So, Andrew, you alluded to an offer of money coming from the school to your family. We'll just clarify that. What happened exactly? Well, everybody told us to school aggressively. And and at that stage in the game, we did not want to, we wanted this to go away and to end and to be resolved. We were very unhappy with how everything had been handled. We said to the school, listen, we want to send our son to private school. He'll probably be there through high school, which would be six years. Would you consider giving us two years of money to cover? Because there was no way he was going to go back at this point. There was simply no way. And they said, well, we'll give you one, what amounted to roughly one year, but you have to agree to never tell anybody that anything, any of this even happened. And I said, well, of course, we'll keep the settlement secret because settlements are always secret. And they said, no, 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 no. You need to keep everything secret. I said, well, you can't keep a secret about anti-Semitism, especially now that we, Israel was just attacked. You're asking us to be silent as Jews about anti-Semitism. And I told our lawyer we cannot be kept silent as as Jews. I, I gave him that language. I'm assuming, I don't know what he said, but I'm assuming he said it. I asked him to. And the message came back, no, we will not give you any money unless you sign a confidentiality agreement that even your own son cannot speak about it. And I was so appalled and offended that they would ask a Jewish family to not speak about anti-Semitism that I turned their money down. Wow, that is something. Um, so you got essentially nothing financially from nothing. the school. Wow. Nothing. And they've gone on to make statements. They've 
made comments that, that my Newsweek article wasn't accurate. My Newsweek article was vetted by everybody. It is so incredibly accurate. I mean, I would attempt there. I would view it as they're attempting to, 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 uh, to uh, you know, disparage me or diminish my credibility. I'm a journalist for 25 years. I, you know, I'm very, very careful about what I say. And we speak, you know, we choose, we choose our words very carefully to speak as, you know, as truthful as we absolutely can. And, and, and we stand firmly behind everything that happened. And we're deeply disappointed. And it was hush money. They tried to buy our silence. And that was just too much for me. I guess, Andrew, a lot of folks are going to say 12-year-olds will be 12-year-olds. Boys especially will be boys. In your view, when does the line get crossed from youthful hijinks and playful teasing to bullying? And when does the line then again get crossed from bullying to systemic anti-Semitism? So you raise excellent points. And, and my, my, my wife was a, was a teacher for many, many years. She, mm. she is a teacher and will continue to teach, but she's staying home now to raise our kids. And she spoke at the, at, the, at, the, uh, at the school board meeting recently. And what she said was, we know that you can't necessarily control these children. OK, we know that. And especially at this age, it's age, it's it's at age 12 and 13 and, and this adolescence or preadolescence where the kids start to challenge their boundaries. They say the wrong thing. They think it's funny. A lot of them, I think, don't even understand the magnitude of what they're saying. I accept that. What I don't accept is that, number one, the school system, the school system has such bad and, and, and poorly planned uh, reaction, uh, ability to react to this and respond. They have such a weak arsenal in their toolkit, number one, to respond, but even more so that they don't have any systems in place to address this. When I grew up, I'm 55 years old, so when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, if someone did that to you, you could hit them. Mm. And th- right. That's not allowed anymore. You hit someone and, and it's game over. So basically, the children children don't get in fistfights anymore. They have to basically just sort of take it. And this is what sort of forces us as parents to then say, well, look, we're not going to encourage our children to fight. That's old school. We're going to ch- encourage our children to not be victims, to stand up, to speak out. Let's go to the school and talk to the school. And you get to the school and they have nothing. They have no tools in their arsenal. The tools that they have are unsophisticated. They're not thought through. They're reactive and they're bad. Now, your question, when does it cross the line? I, you know, that's a very good question. I, a lot of children, uh, uh, I hate to say it, and I don't, you know, I don't like talking about this, kill themselves mm-hmm. from this kind of bullying. And it's a tragic, horrifying thing. I did not want to go down that path with, with our son. And when I saw that the school was doing so little to protect him, we pulled him out. You know, I was told about a student, an African-American student who was being mistreated with, with racism in, an, in another town. And the safety plan they had for him that was, was that he could go sit in the hall alone. Now, that to me is a complete c- catastrophic response to racism. I would argue that how our son was treated here was not that different. He could go to a different lunch table. If he was scared, he could go see a teacher. But ultimately, all it is is move this Jewish kid around the school. And ultimately, the school offered us money. Are they, they, we asked for it, but they were willing to give us money for him to leave. That is such a failure, a systemic failure at every level of the, of the, of the game. And again, kids act this way. We need the schools to come in and protect them and to, be, you know, and to create a system where they're going to be safe. So in terms of lessons for other school administrators, other principals, other teachers, other parents that may find themselves dealing with an issue like this in the future, whether it's anti-Semitic in nature or not, maybe a child's bullied because they're black or Asian or uh, or short or tall or heavy or or skinny, whatever the case may be. What suggestions would you have for how schools and maybe even how parents, given the current dynamics in the era in which we live, can handle this? Well, this is you raise another excellent point. 
I'm in a situation where I'm able to pay for my son to go to a private school. We're not a wealthy family, but my son's safety is something that I was I was able to come up with the money to put him in a wealthy. In, 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 we're not wealthy to put him in a school that was that that had it, it's not that expensive, but it is a private school. A lot of people don't have that opportunity. They don't have that ability, and they rely on the schools. They count on the schools to be able to protect their kids. And this is something where I think we need to see legislation or pushing or fighting. And I'm not talking about far left politics here. I'm talking about simple programs and systems to keep children safe. When you when you type in bullying and suicide into Google, you will get a horrifying number of stories that if you read the first one, it will break your heart. By the time you get to the third one, you want to tear your skin off. It is terrifying. This this is it's 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 a serious problem. Then you add to that the racial component, in our case, being Jewish and the anti-Semitism. We have kids, uh, family members that were killed in the Holocaust. So now you're not just traumatizing my son, you're traumatizing a whole family. I mean, this is some dangerous stuff. The trouble is that when you speak up, everyone turns against you. It would be it would be such a nice thing if you were to speak up about racism or or, or anti-Semitism and everyone came to your rescue. Now you speak up and you see the friends drop the friends. And this is a very complicated place that I think we have a long way to go. And I do not would not claim to have all the answers. A lot of people congratulated me. I wrote an article in Newsweek. Millions of people saw it because it ended up on Morning Joe. And in, now it's on ABC with you and we're going to be all over the country. Well, you know, people said, thank you for standing up. And a lot of people said, I don't have the guts to do that myself. I'm scared to do it. Other parents in town called us and said, my son experienced anti-Semitism too, but I don't want to draw attention to it because I'm afraid of the backlash right. that you went through. So what do we do about that? I don't know. Uh, Let me ask you this. Why the Jews? Why does it seem that uh, throughout so many different aspects of history, Jewish people are scapegoated for the world's problems or individual problems? You know, a a lot of times we'll have people that will call this radio show that will sound relatively intelligent. They'll be making a point here or there about whatever. Sometimes it will delve into conspiracy theory areas, but then they will kind of make a left turn towards, oh, and that's because the heads of every major media corporation are Jewish or uh, what do so and so and so and so and so and so have in common? Oh, it's that they're all Jewish. And I'm just amazed that there's so much Jew hatred out there. Why the Jews? You know, you raise <laughs> these are these are these are the questions for the ages. So as, as your viewers may or may not, your listeners may or may not know, uh, anti-Semitism is something I've studied for many years, having done two PBS specials about anti-Semitism, uh, including one that aired two years ago about anti-Semitism in four different countries. And you find that people come to it in a lot of different ways. It, it's 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 taught in a lot of different sort of outlets, whether it's it's certain parts of the media, ultimately in the home and ultimately in, in, in a lot of the religious institutions. But we believe those of us who sort of work in the field that the beginning of this conversation, the beginning of where anti-Semitism starts is thousands of years ago with the idea, the biblical idea that the Jews are accused of, of being the ones who kill Christ. Mm-hmm. Now, now the Jews. There were a group of Jews in the Bible who called for his, in the Bible, they say, let his blood be upon us, et cetera, et cetera. You can treat that as, you know, an old story or what have you, or you can do what a lot of Europeans did over the years, is they taught that the Jews were evil, the Jews were with Satan, the Jews were the killers of God. That idea has stuck, and it has stuck and traced century after century, being rewritten in thousands of different forms until it comes now today, and people don't even realize it. 
People don't even know they're doing it. You know, you make a comment in a in a in a grocery store. You know, when when they say that you know, oh oh, this item is eighteen dollars, or you know, this bottle of wine is eighteen dollars, and I thought it was only fourteen. And you say to the, you'll hear someone say to the checkout clerk, oh, you're trying to Jew me down. These are old ideas that have been you know Jew me down, Jews and money and all these you know old ancient ideas. Now, the kid that was teasing my son, I don't think he's thinking about any of that. I think he was ignorant, and he's a child, and he probably heard someone say it, and he saw some of it on South Park. But this is a big, complicated question. I do not believe, and this is a very important thing, that anti-Semitism and the mistreatment of Jews is because there is an existence of a state of Israel. And this is something that a lot of people like to do, is say, well, Jews would be treated better if Israel would behave better. Not so. The Jews were mistreated to the point where they were six million of them were killed, and there was no state of Israel. So... We see the greatest anti-Semitism before the creation of the state of Israel. So I can talk about this for hours and would be glad to if if you'd like. (laughs) Well, you'll you'll have to come back. Uh, We're we're not going to have hours today, but uh, something tells me this is an issue that's not going anywhere. Uh, By the way, the film that you talked about was called Viral, which uh, was uh, an award winning piece looking at anti-Semitism all over the place. It's called Viral Anti-Semitism in Four Mutations. Are people able to see that anywhere these days? Andrew? They are. I believe it's on uh, uh, Prime, uh, Amazon Prime. I think it's also on uh, Apple uh, iTunes. And I, and I know you can get it on PBS. It was a PBS special, national big PBS special. You can get it on Passport. And if you really want to see it, you can track me down online and I'll get you a copy of it. <laughs> so y- you mentioned what's happening in Israel now. One of the things that I, I do see from time to time is that criticism of the Israeli government or criticism of the Netanyahu government specifically, especially when it's done from uh, G- Gentiles, is often kind of brushed aside as just more anti-Semitism. You'd agree, right, that you can be critical of the decisions of the Israeli government, whether it's on domestic policy with the uh, Supreme Court thing, which was very controversial, or even on foreign policy, and not be anti-Semitic, right? I think that Israel deserves criticism. It deserves. I'll tell you how much it, criticism Israel deserves. It deserves exactly as much criticism as any other country. Mm-hmm. What it doesn't deserve is less criticism than any other country, and what it certainly doesn't deserve is an disproportionately more criticism than any other country. Now, I would argue that Israel gets more criticism and more eyeballs on it than any other country by far, and that any any action that Israel takes is looked at by 50 microscopes rather than one. Okay, fair enough. Even I don't I don't I don't think it's entirely fair that Israel is looked at with with so much more criticism than any every other country does, and I would argue that a lot of that might have to do with the fact that it's a Jewish country. But I think that Israel deserves criticism. I think Israel fails in many ways. I think it succeeds in others. And for those failures, Israel should be held accountable. But I will say this. When it comes to talking about Israel, we have to think about the language that we use. You know, this is a sensitive place. It's a sensitive subject with a people that have been subjected to a lot of mistreatment. So let's pick our words carefully. Let's not throw, let's not blur the idea of a Jew and an Israeli, a Jew and an Israeli government. You know, when happens in Africa, people don't pick on African-Americans, what would the two have to do with each other? When something happens in, in China, when people in America were picked on for COVID, that was outright racism against mm. Asians. What, what was said and what was done. We have to be careful and choose our language carefully. But Israel deserves criticism because Israel makes mistakes like any other country does. Andrew, unfortunately, we're going to have to end the conversation there. I hope you'll come back. Best of luck with your son and all your other work. I appreciate the time this morning. 
Thank you so much for having me. Andrew Goldberg, if you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection from uh, one of our listeners, Bruce Pickering, who is turning 71 years old today. So uh, happy birthday, Bruce Pickering. Thank you for uh, listening to this program as often as you do. You have narrowly avoided, you've narrowly missed, I should say, being named Listener of the Week several times. All right, uh, I only have a minute here. So those of you that are holding, and there's a bunch of you on hold, rather than try and squeeze one of you in and uh, ask you to condense what might be a complicated thought or a question into 20 or 30 seconds, then I, um, I'm going to hold you over to the top of next hour, and we'll get to your point there. I will tell you, I want to thank... Uh, so yesterday, my wife started to take down our Christmas decorations. And the de- decorations, the boxes that are under the tree, which house decorations... They look a lot like, they look a lot like gifts. And so Carmine sees present, present. And my wife says, no, 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 there's no present here. And Carmine says, no, 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 present. Oh, she says, wait a minute, I actually do have a present for you. I'll tell you what became of that present as well after the top of the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.